Hey, this is Dirk Revueren from Megadeth, and you're listening to GhostCultMag.com. It's been a while, my friends. Welcome back to the Ghost Cult Magazine podcast. I'm your host, OJ. Before we get into this episode, just take a minute to like and subscribe to our podcast, our YouTube channel, and wherever else we're at. If we get these numbers up, maybe we'll finally release that Salted Wounds track that you hear in our intros. But enough of all that. Tom Osmond sat down with the whole band of Oxbow to talk about the new record and their history. Check it out. Thank you all very much for taking the time out to do this interview for Ghost Cult Magazine. I am a huge Oxbow fan, so it's it's an honor to get to talk to all of you. And also, it's been great to get to listen to the to the latest album before the public do and get to digest it and uh, yeah have the opportunity to to talk to you all about it so before we get into all of that i just have a quick question for eugene eugene fuckfest came out in 1989 is that right be better off asking nico that <laughs> yeah, right. I, I have that's no right. idea i'm lost in time at this point so at 19, this point 1989 yeah 1989 so at this point you know 34 years later eugene is that scream on hunger still bothering you or are you are you all right with it now <laughs> no it still bothers me man uh, i can tell you right this song where it is it doesn't um and you know some bands like when i'll talk to steve ballinger from whipping boy you know and we talk about like sound of no hands clapping we talk very seriously about you know uh, more and more we should go back and remix it and i, I never have that feeling about oxbow i know nico feels differently i i really love everything that we've recorded uh, except for that version of Hunger, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I mean, what Nico said at the time, you know, resonates, it resonated as true then and it resonates as true now, but I just can't help it. I was still, I thought over over the years that I would like relent and feel okay about that one scream, but I absolutely don't and would like to change it. But it, 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 it now it stands as it's representative of my discomfort with reality. So... Uh, All right. I've, cho- I've chosen to live with it. You chose life in this sense. Mm. <laughs> well, going, going into the album then, so this is sort of um, directly to Nico, but any of you can, can touch on this. Nico, I, I saw a comment from you in the, the press release that when you were talking about um, A Thousand Hours, you, you mentioned that there was this sort of this dichotomy or this combination of a bright extroverted feel and a darker introspective mood, which was sort of essential to the album overall. Could you expand on what you mean by that in general? That's an interesting question. <clears throat> and I would say right at, at this point, when you say that, I think about intentions versus reality. So uh, by that, I mean, Oxbow has been intending to do certain things. And I intended for that song, Thousand Hours, to turn out a certain way. However, the reality, the way that we are, the way that the members of Oxbow agree and the way that we make music together revealed itself. So I wanted Thousand Hours to be bright and present and to be, you know, yay, <laughs> this sort of like energetic song. When we played it in rehearsal, and that's how we get the recordings together, we work on songs together, the more introspective, the darker thing that we do together that we all share together came out and that's a really honest um it's an honest statement but it's an honest reflection of our music we intend to do certain things but when we let the thing that we do well that we agree on that introspective dark moody come out 
it makes for better music. And that's an example of, uh, I found it really interesting how the, that revealed itself in, in that song. I mean, I, I think also, you know, thinking a thousand hours, it was much, it was even darker when we first started rehearsing it, uh, especially my playing. I was, if you remember, I was originally playing it very slow, like halftime or what it is now, like on um, the finish line, kind of more in that sort of vein. And um, I think it was really Joe that pushed me to not, to brighten it up, to, to double, double the beats on the, you know, to play it much more like it has a groove rather than sort of a dirgy dark. So if Nico had intended it to be bright, um, you know, I had never gotten that message, but, um, <laughs> but uh, only the first one, certainly. Yeah. But we, we did, yeah. we did kind of, for lack of a better term, we did kind of brighten it up in the end from how it started. So, I mean, in general, and I don't know if this is sort of something you can generalize through the the songs and the albums of Oxbow, but how much would you say the construction of the songs is sort of fully formed ideas versus improvisation and working things out collectively? We try not to be dogmatic about that, by which I mean, I always have fully formed ideas. I bring songs into rehearsal and then the, everybody else does what they do and they make it better. So I'm not saying that my <laughs> ideas are the best, but I do have an idea. So, but for example, Greg mentioned um, the finished line, which is the last song on Sim Black Duke. That was a song that I, I began in Paris. And I, the fun thing about that was I brought it into rehearsal after coming home from France and Eugene's wife was there actually at rehearsal. And I have a recording of the first time we went through that. I think I sent the guys a demo recording and maybe I played the demo recording again and we played it and God damn, if the first time that we played it, it didn't sound very close to the way that the finished recording sound because I think the, the way that the song is written goes towards their strengths, towards Dan's strengths, towards Greg's strengths and things that we know how to do together. It was magic. Um, you know, maybe I did a good job, Maybe I don't always want to have that kind of thing. I think the struggle of developing songs makes songs better. But that's an example of the intention coming through right away. We do have improv songs. Um, the new record, an example of that is uh, uh, Icy White and, and Crystalline. That was an Im improv in rehearsal that I recorded on my phone. It sounds like with some harmonic stuff. And the, the bridge was another improvisation from another day put them together and uh, work it out. But, you know, we, we don't want to be dogmatic about always doing things one way. Okay. And yeah, and Nico, and Nico, Nico often brings, I mean, Nico sometimes brings things in very, very finished, but often he'll bring in just a series of ideas here that, you know, I've got this and this and this, I'm not entirely sure how they're going to fit together. Here you go. You know, what do you guys, you know, you guys, fuck this up and you know tell me you know <laughs> and uh i think i think the music's better when we work it out in that way usually but you know like nico says we're not dogmatic songs happen a couple of different ways so was there anything particularly that felt different about this for you eugene because i've seen in press releases it was mentioning that in the past nico had more created music around your lyrics whereas this time around you were sort of 
figuring out what you wanted to to write lyrically to his music or was it sort of not really such a contrast like that it was it was um and now that you mention it now that we've done a number of different interviews uh, uh, talking about it i think it was a sort of chaos for me that i i gleefully embraced right and i mean i'd said this before that uh, it was my understanding and largely strongly held impression that i'd said everything i really needed to stay say from fuckfest to thin black duke um and to do to do anything actually other than what was actually done i think would have been dishonest it's like i didn't have anything in my head i caught up to documenting the life and times of and was comfortably kind of just living i wasn't obsessed with anything wasn't thinking about anything um so being able to to fashion a universe a lyrical universe out of the songs as i heard them was an interesting challenge but not one unrelated to i mean it's not like i've not done it before i've done it with other you know side projects and so on where i just kind of listen to the music and say oh and see if there had, there's a unifying theme between all this but it was you know whether we played some of these songs for a long time so whether it was me just listening at practice again and again and then writing a lyric to it i mean i don't sing any of these songs at practice before we record them uh, with the exception of million dollar weekend i'd not sung any of these songs and the first time i sing them is what you hear when you hear the record right um but that i still go to practice and when i'm not sleeping at practice which I would even say is work time. I'm thinking about the song and what the what the what the music is bringing forth. And so a lot of these lyrics I wrote on my phone as I'm sitting at practice listening. And it was and then even then even then there was no I had no reasonable guarantee from Nico or anybody else what order the songs would eventually be in. Um, I, I had no idea what music was going with, with which songs. Even though I wrote like you know I'd say well I think these are the lyrics to that song, but I'd have to be able to name the song before we could figure it out, which wasn't always the song that goes dee, 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 dee. Nobody knows what the fuck you're talking about when you do that. So, <laughs> so it was, it was, it was this kind of, this lazy Susans of, of chance and, and chaos that kind of determined it. And then even with all of that, even with all of that, you know, themes, large scale themes, you know, start to emerge. And, and I wasn't forcing it. I wasn't trying to impose a lyrical vision on the music. It's just kind of what popped into my head when I was hearing the music. So um, it's it's nice. The, the coherence is nice. I mean, it could have ended up, you know, it could have, if I had been, maybe if I'd been an art student, I could have been much more consciously chaotic, like William Burroughs's name has come up and something I just read that we, we talked about where it's like, you know, the cut up method, but I, I, I've never been a super big fan of that. I like, uh, I like to, insofar as possible, be as direct as I'm able to be. Do you lyrically tend to, to look for an overriding theme, like a sort of a cohesive theme lyrically for the, for the albums that you create, or is that more something that collectively you decide once you've got the musical pieces and the lyrical pieces together, what kind of the form of the album is? Well, I mean, thankfully, you know, uh, nobody has, has uh, nobody has told me what to write or how to write it. Um, um, I, I think the one piece of lyrical input that I had was when that first thing we did on Hydra Head, which uh, to swap out the word, uh, to place hypnagogic in replace of pornographic, which was uh, 
I think Dan was the first one to say, no, nah, I'm not feeling the pornographic. And I go, what about hypnagogic? Because that's much better. And, and that was the right call. But in, in general, in general, I'm, I, I'm not, um, you know, the others have existed for me like movies from Fuckfest through, through Thin Black Duke. They've been like movies to me. And then you have a script and I have stuff that I'm obsessed with that I'll then say, okay, I got to get this out of the head. And how do I get it out of the head? Well, let's, you know, let's create a character, Frank Johnson, in the case of, you know, the narcotic story, or let's, uh, you know, serenade in red, we take these dreams, this dreamscape I've been having and try to put that in a framework that'll make sense in the context of a record. But, um, but yeah, that's typically how it's been done. But with this was complete chaos from the lyrics side. And I had no idea if it would work or if I would even like the lyrics. Um, but I, I do quite a bit actually of this. And they have an extra added bonus of being easier for me to sing, which is to say, remember, <laughs> which I can't, I, I can't always say that about, you know, Serenade and Red, I aggressively overwrote, and it gets hard to remember all those words. Well, I- talking about talking about unifying factors, sorry, Tom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, I think about that a lot, because we're talking about this new recording a lot about Love's Holiday. And I think about we've always been interested in the long form and making 40 minutes of music of recordings make sense together. And part of that um, is on part of that unifying stuff is on a continuum between intention and happy accidents. So listen to the first two Oxbow records. They're heavily uh, structured, but part of that was realizing after the fact that, Oh, both these records have really defined centers and there's reflection points, but they're very palindrome related. And the two, uh, Fuckfest and a King of the Jews work as palindromes with each other. And there's all sorts of crazy shit. Again, partly intended, partly not. Narcotic story has, uh, through from, uh, chaotic to a very clear C minor. It starts in C major. And, you know, this is a really clear structures intended partly and also revealed i think the brain works in interesting ways this new album eugene started talking about love as a unifying factor to the lyrics and i realized oh you know all these songs there's songs that are 20 years old there's songs that are 10 years old and there's new songs that the music was begun in 2016 2017 i was writing those with my kids which is like for me, this amazing life thing, I think for everybody, for most people, having a child is like filled with love and, and light and interesting and just overwhelmingly beautiful and a pain in the ass and, you know, really cool. People are coming and going by which I mean, babies are being born. My parents died um, all during the making of some of these songs. And that to me talks about love and I was playing, writing songs on the guitar that my my father used to play when he was a kid, you know, things like that. Yes, it's intended. Yes, it's looking after the fact and realizing every song has this unifying factor. So that, you know, that's when I think about how to describe how this album, you know, that's that's what I realized. On the- however, however, the, the 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 love is the 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 love the lyrical love that I I'm capturing is, is very different from the musical love that Nico's talking about. I mean, we we all have kids, but mine was very distinctly focused on erotic love. Just to be clear, <laughs> I, I don't think I've written I don't think I've written uh, I don't think I've written a, 
a lyric about my kids necessarily. Though I used Ruby's name on Serenade in Red, which actually was not Ruby's name when, <laughs> so Ruby was named after the song. Uh, so. Well, on the topic uh, of- I was just gonna, oops, sorry, I know you no, want- No, no problem, please carry on. Um, I was just gonna make the point. One of the things that I, I think is um, really wonderful about the way we approach things is that it leaves room for everything to evolve um, beyond where we thought it was going when it when it came in, um, and so it really is um, it, it really is a uh, a unique collective thing that leads to the final result. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, it, it leads to surprise as well. Um, but it, it involves trust that when we bring these ideas together, they're going to they're going to turn into something that makes sense. Um, but I think that's a, that's a much more intriguing process than coming in and trying to write something down on paper that is the map and say, oh, no, it's not following the map. Oh, no, it's not right. No, no, we got to, you know, and then it ends up being a, a sort of a, a forced version of something that was jotted down on paper that maybe didn't have the inspiration of two years of work through something. So, um, Eugene, you were talking before, uh, you said an interesting thing where um, you don't sing when you're working out the lyrics and the band is rehearsing the songs, did I understand yeah. that correctly? So yeah. for the, for the rest of you, do you find uh, that that must be an interesting process when you're working out these songs together and you've got Eugene figuring the things out internally, and then you get to hear how he's interpreted or how he's put himself into these songs. Is that, uh, how do you find that process? I mean, I guess you all have other band experience that you can compare that with. Is that quite novel? To, to construct songs in that way? It can be. Um, I would say that I like the way that that process works. I can see a future where in the, the interest of doing things differently and discovering new ways to be make Oxbow music, we could do that, meaning vocals differently. In the past, um, we just used all the voices. There's many, many five, six, seven, eight tracks of voices all stacked on each other. And that makes early Oxbow records. That's part of what, why they sound that way. Now we're going towards a more clear uh, presentation of our ideas, meaning the songs are more simple and clear, but still have the same emotional content uh, in my mind, uh, which means that things like Pro Tools come in handy and... Uh, thankfully, uh, we're all pretty open to changes to the songs, so we sometimes move the singing around. Um, one of the benefits of Eugene is that he he always will have a compelling delivery of a line. Sometimes we'll cut off the end, or sometimes we'll redo that. And so the technology has aided us in being more clear, but also, yeah, I would say that. So we've approached that kind of improvisatory singing uh, in different ways, and we're doing it differently now than we did in the past. I should also explain why I started to do to do it that way. And in the olden days, and uh, during Whipping Boy times, uh, we would sing and practice like maybe other bands do. But a lot of times, if the music was ready, maybe the vocal wasn't ready, and I was just throwing some, you know, what we, they used to call scratch vocals in there, just to give. The musicians something to hang their hats on but then when it came time to actually actually deliver the song i had then spent eight ten twelve months doing a vocal that i didn't like and that wasn't really 
fit for the song, but I couldn't. Then it, it, I, I was imprinted with this, with the shitty version, um, where if I'd been given some time to think about it or develop it or I'd been faster at developing it, it would have been something that that did, gave me more pleasure than it did. So for Fuckfest and when we started doing this, we just did a different thing. I didn't want to rehearse something that I didn't like and then kind of go in the studio and then maybe try to unlearn that, replace it with something else. It's like, fuck that, 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 that was not working for me, you know? Um, yeah, I, I think it is, I think it is a sort of unique way of working. I mean, personally, I, I like it a lot. And it, although one thing that is different about this record, like Eugene has mentioned, usually, although he hasn't sung the lyrics while we're rehearsing, Usually we've all at least seen a printed version of the words. And so that sort of emotional content of the lyrics has already kind of worked its way into your consciousness, you know, but that didn't happen here. Uh, we not only had we not heard the words, but I think for the most part, we had not seen them, at least not, uh, not during the rehearsing process of, you know, putting the music together. So that was another thing that's uh, unique about this particular record. There's a, yeah, and there's a great element of you know it, we have to we have to make the songs stand by themselves and work harder to make them make sense because we we don't know what the lyrics are going to be doing and we're not content to just write something that sounds sort of like a you know some foundation that eventually will be saved when vocals get stuffed on top of it. So we really do take you know I think that that gives the instrumental aspects of the music just a lot more. Um, kind of strength and maturity when we finally get into the studio and it makes for ultimately a, a, a kind of a stronger blend when the vocals finally come on it's like okay we had a song that was pretty darn good and now it's like you know twice or 10x what it was because it all comes together with uh, with the vocals it's great on the topic of how everything came together i think one of the the notable things about the album in terms of the sort of the sound and the texture is this pronounced choral aspect to the music how how integral to that was the creation, or how integral was that to the creation of the songs? The choral thing came about in a, from a couple of different directions, and and one of the strong reasons for that was uh, Lisa, at, uh, who runs Supersonic Festival in Birmingham, England. Briefly, she and I spoke on the telephone a uh, long distance one day. Maybe it was twenty sixteen. Long story short, she's been sort of a curator for Oxford in various ways. And she said, well, what are you doing that's new? What what's, could we present at Supersonic that you guys are thinking about that you haven't done yet? And I talked to her saying, well, I have this piano song that I began in 2001. So it's already 16, 15 years old. I'm realizing that it should be a have choir on it. And that's the song All Gone. And she said, well, let's, long story short, again, she said, let me get a choir together and um, you can present that at Supersonic in 2017, which we did. Uh, thank goodness. And it was like, you know, really cool. Thank you to Lisa. Um, and what that did was push me, number one, to write down on paper the choir arrangement. And number two, it instigated this idea, well, we're going to put All Gone on this record that will be called Love's Holiday. What if we had other songs? What if we, and I think that Greg was pushing for this uh, to, what if we didn't have brass and strings this time? We didn't have woodwinds. What if every, the orchestrations were voices? That's a great idea. 
So what you end up with is a 15-piece choir that sings on uh, Night the Room Started Burning um, and Gunnel, and we have Lingua Ignata doing her version of a choir on um, Lovely Merck and Roger Manning's singing beautiful Beach Boys small ensemble backing vocals, choir, choral type things on Thousand Hours. Um, and that becomes a unifying factor in the music. Um, so you have to give some credit to Lisa. Yeah, and I think the choral thing worked so well at Supersonic. I think we were all so you know, excited by how it happened. I mean, it was a fairly obvious thing to just sort of morph that into, well, why don't we take all the stuff we would normally maybe augment with strings and other instruments and, you know, have Nico just make all that, write all that stuff for chorus instead. Now it's easy for me to say, and uh, obviously Nico had to do some of the work there uh, or all the work, but I, I think it came out really great. I mean, I, I'm really happy with it. So You've had kind of a long, rich history of different representations of your music. I remember seeing the, now I forget what you called it, but it was when it was Nico and Eugene with an orchestra. Maybe you called it the Oxbow Orchestra. You, I saw you playing in London. I think it was in a converted chapel. Eugene, I remember you had your fingers together because you'd had some jujitsu injury, I think. And you had this, uh, you had this duo called Orr who was supporting, and it was two guys who looked Amish, and they were sitting there in front of each tubas. other with uh, tubas, yeah, which was pretty yeah. wild. And you've obviously had different constructions and arrangements you've done with the band. You did the album, or the you did the live show or shows with Peter Brutzman. Um, is that something from quite early on that you've been interested in in finding different ways to represent the music or did that idea or those ideas come later on in the in the history of Oxbow? I'm really interested in large ensembles. As a guitar player, when you play electric guitar, it's can be a, you don't need to have very many electric guitars unless you're East Chatham or you know that sort of thing. But I love playing with a lot of people as a child I went to church and I saw choirs and I've sang in choirs across my life at college, at music school, you know, touring with the British band God, nine people on stage, two bass players, two drummers. It's a very, very cool thing. Um, I love that. And I, I think it's much easier to have a small ensemble, have a rock band, the trio with the singer. Uh, it's less expensive, but, you know, so I want, it all. And one of the ways you can do that is in recording. In recording, you can have acoustic instruments like violins with a beautiful acoustic sound play with a loud rock band. So you have this non-reality. So that's one way to get those things together. There's something very, very special when a lot of people are making music together. In terms of not necessarily that aspect of having a large configuration of people, but in terms of sort of reconstructing things in interesting ways. One of the things I, I find really fascinating about your style, Nico, of playing is the different or the alternate tunings that you use. It was one thing during the, the COVID pandemic lockdown. I was in uh, Prague at the time and I stumbled on this Facebook post where you'd helpfully listed all of the different guitar tunings that you had on Oxbow songs. And so I turned it into a bit of a lockdown project to figure out how many uh, Oxbow songs I could work out an approximation of by doing the different tunings and uh, oh wow cool I'm I got about three albums through and probably it was you know like very rickety versions of how you play it but I'm I'm really fascinated by how you would come across or how you decided to use the different tunings that you've used over the years I mean I know sometimes you use standard mm -hmm. tuning but you seem to have a lot of alternates there's sort of open C's and G's of different configurations so 
How has that all come about? Um, firstly, uh, that's really exciting and, and flattering that you took the time to look at those tunings. They're very meaningful to me, so I'm glad that you found some use <laughs> for highlighting that. Um, I had to write that down and be methodical about uh, understanding the different songs of different tunings because of live performance. So the songs will come about in different tunings, but when we play live, we make a, just to quickly say, we make a, a new set list, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes before we perform every time a new set list. And as you saw, there's, we now have maybe 70 different songs and all the early records have lots of tunings. There's probably 15 different tunings, variations, maybe 17, 18 tunings. How do you do that live? I don't have a guitar tech. And so I need to negotiate with my bandmates what the songs are going to be, how much time we can spend tuning, how many guitars I have on stage, how, you know, all that crap from memory right away. Cause we need to play and we're all nervous. And, and that pushed the part of the interest in going back to standard tuning as well. Um, so the new records are in standard tuning because of the ease, because I don't have to freak out and try to remember the tuning of these songs when we make a set list right before we go on stage and then fumble through it on stage. But I love tunings and I came to that partly as a kid. Even before I started playing guitar, I was fascinated with the sound of open tunings heard on Bron Yauer by uh, uh, Led Zeppelin on, on uh, Physical Graffiti, also by... Pete Seeger, there's a song that he wrote um, called Bells of Rimni, um, which is a, a Welsh poem, I can't remember the, the poet, which turns out to be a very low A, which is you know really hip at the moment to have super low A tuning on acoustic guitar, both those songs, acoustic guitar. And, and I eventually tried to do that myself, starting out on acoustic guitar. And it's really impractical, but it's a beautiful sound, as we all know. Then when you use it with electricity, the first song I did that on for Oxbow was probably uh, the third song on Fuckfest, which is The Valley. It's a cello tuning, so in fifths, C, G, D, A, and then the top two strings are B and E left normal. And, uh, you, you know, so it it's a gorgeous sound on electric guitar. It's a beautiful sound on acoustic. I came to it from recordings as a child, used it in Oxbow and now have moved away from open tunings because it's easier. And also it stays out of the way of, of our killer bass player, Dan. When I am in standard tuning and I've gone the opposite direction with the capo to get even higher. And that again, gives new Oxbow recordings a clarity that the other ones didn't have. Obviously we love Sledgy, we love Messy, we love, but we're trying something different. And if the guitar stays out of the way of the bass, hey, you can actually hear both instruments more clearly. There's room for the voice. We've gone that direction. When I do open tunings now, I still, it. you go, oh, yeah, that's cool. Um, the tunings themselves probably came from things like on uh, King of the Jews, there's a song that I had a broken B string on my Stratocaster, and um I liked the way the guitar was slightly out of tune because of the uh, vibrato arm and the tension wasn't quite the same. And I used that for burn. Da, 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 da. It's intended to be out of tune because of the broken string. That's a different tuning. 
um, other things, you know, had similar kind of instigation. You've touched upon a couple of times in this interview, Whipping Boy, and uh, I've got a, a, I'm curious to know a little bit of backstory with Dan and Greg. So if I understand right, Dan, you actually played maybe briefly drums in Whipping Boy, and you also played drums in another band, Ugly Americans. How did you come yeah. about to be playing bass for Oxbow? Um, well, that was easy. The, the bass player left, and there were better drummers <laughs> than I was around. <laughs> um, I started on the piano, and then and then drums were my main thing for, for quite a long time, but I had uh, picked up a bass, uh, fretless, uh, old 70s, uh, 70s Fender Precision for like $200, <laughs> um, which I never thought that much about, but I was playing in some cover bands and things and, and always really enjoyed it. Um, uh, and then was really the tail, very tail end of uh, Whipping Boy's Last Gasps. I was playing drums, unfortunately found Nico and Eugene through a, an ad. Um, and and then, uh, yeah, the, the band was kind of, there were... I don't even remember how long it was, but it wasn't very long before uh, things kind of changed around. I started playing bass, and at the same time, we realized they were starting to put a few Oxbow songs in. We played a couple of live shows, and then it just sort of morphed into being a different different thing. But I have to say, um, both um, Tom, who started out playing drums, and then Greg, when he joined, um, both taught me great things about um, how they brought very different things to the to the drumming than I would have done, and uh, such wonderful approaches and kind of an element of, of joy. And so it's been really great for me to to become the bass player in the band and and really play play the role that I feel is a much much better fit for me um, than what I would have done if I were playing drums in the band. Do you find yourself going back to drums, or are you do you consider yourself a bass player now? Um, I still, um, one thing that was kind of fortunate is my hands started hurting quite a bit playing drums and harder, harder music as I learned the value of hitting my drums harder. And so I ended up uh, sort of focusing more on jazz stuff for, for drums, which is what I had done with a lot of my drumming in the past. So I still play with some folks, um, just more pickup groups, but do some jazz things on drums and then uh, playing bass in Oxbow. It was great. I was walking down the street one night um, in this place, Mountain View, which is pretty close to here. And I looked through the front window of a cafe and Dan is on stage playing. I, I had no idea. I recognize that guy. It was, it was very, very amusing. Some jazz trio. So, I think Dan is, is quite modest. What I recall is that we needed a bass player in Whipping Boy and at that time, as Dan outlined, we were starting to think about performing as Oxbow. And I had a conversation with Dan about, well, we need we don't have a bass player. Do you have a you know, my intention was do we do you know anybody? And Dan said, I'm thinking about playing bass. I think I would like to play bass. And then more clearly, I'm gonna play bass. <laughs> and you know, it turned out spectacularly. Um, and I should also point out that Greg played on the first a uh, few Oxbow records as well. So he was always a part of the ensemble. As you mentioned, Greg, and Greg, I, I was curious to know, you, you seem a bit 
like the most mysterious and least written about figure of the band. And you are yeah. the one member who wasn't in Whipping Boy at some period of time. So maybe you could uh, give a bit of insight into what you were doing musically before Oxbow and how you joined the band. Well, I would, you know, Eugene and Nico and probably Dan, although I'm not sure, already knew who I was when they were putting, and obviously I knew who Whipping Boy was, but I had been in other, you know, punk rock bands or in the in the area and we AMA in AMA and uh we we had played at various venues and shows together and then when Nico approached me when they were doing Fuckfest and said look we're we're doing this record there's gonna be all sorts of different musicians on it you know would you like to come in and play a couple of songs and uh I said of course and so uh I played on Curse and Bullseye yep. on the first record, which we recorded in uh, the living room of the house that you guys were living in at the time, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, but then I, you know, I was doing other things um, when Oxbow became a real band, quote unquote, and not just sort of a project. And so Tom played, you know, most of the drum, all of the drum duties for their live tours and uh, subsequent record. Um, King of the Jews, although I showed up and did some clapping and singing on King of the Jews. Um, and then uh, I think it was 95, Tom had taken a job and was leaving the state or something. And uh, they approached me again and said, we need somebody to, to, you know, fill Tom, fill in for Tom full time. And I was more than happy to do so. Um, I had actually stopped. I was pretty disillusioned with most of the bands I had been playing with at the time. And I hadn't, I wasn't really playing much when they approached me and I had decided I'm not interested in playing with anybody that I'm not excited about, you know? And in fact, I remember thinking, you know, like something like Oxbow, like I'd, I want to be in a band with guys that I'm excited about, like those guys in Oxbow. And then they approached me and said, well, how about joining Oxbow? I was in, they didn't have to ask me twice, you know? Approached you and said, here's a record that you're on and I'll give it to you for wholesale. Yeah, there was that, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which I still appreciate, you know, now, especially, but, uh, you know, we've had really good luck with, um, the guys that we make records with. It was Bart Thurber's idea, Greg to, I think I've told you this before said, uh, Oh, you should have Greg come and play on this record. He's amazing. I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, Bart Thurber recorded and, you know, worked with us on Fuckfest and King of the yeah. Jews yeah, and we had same, recorded with Bart. I had, in my other band, we had recorded with Bart. So, exactly. Similar to on Love's Holiday, uh, we were thinking about somebody to. Uh, we had a conversation in the studio. Who would be good to sing on Lovely Merc? I've got this line in mind. It's probably <laughs> maybe a female voice. And Joe said, "Well, why don't you get the singer Lingua Ignata?" Eugene, I, I believe, said, "Oh yeah," and I said, "I don't know who that is," and I checked out the music and you know obviously she did an amazing job recording on lovely merc but sometimes we get good suggestions and it works out yeah the <laughs> the, the lingua Nyota contribution is great i i only discovered her um maybe about a year ago and then i i saw her playing in brussels last year and she's wow. she's incredible um so indeed did you actually have her uh, in the studio together with you, or did she send recordings into you to be mixed? 
she did her singing parts in uh, at Machines with Magnets Studio. She's been making records with uh, Seth. Uh, forget his last name there in is it uh where the heck is that we actually oxbow has played in that it's in it's rhode island i think rhode island. Rhode island. Rhode island. Yeah. 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 that's it um but i sent her you know uh my idea about the song i sent her the written arrangement of the notes and um said this is how i see it but of course you know do what you feel and she did both um, I asked her to do what one of the, my favorite thing about lingua ignata recordings is that choral thing that she does that it's slightly unnerving stacked singing, which is something that Eugene has done a lot of with Oxbow. So it kind of made sense. So I gave her some direction and then she went off and did this amazing thing with lots of her own input. For example, the, the bridge was just her improvisation or her idea in any case. If I followed the, the Instagram posts correctly, you've made a video for every song on the record. Is that correct? We're trying to, yeah. Was there... Some are still in process. Still making them. So. <laughs> and I guess, because track number seven, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to call it. Seven, like... It's an interstitial piece. Yeah, we don't have a name for it. Yeah. Is that, that, that one's quite short. Is that also going to have its own video? It does already. It's finished, yeah. It's done. What was what was the particular thought behind having that comprehensive visual companion to the album? Um, record sales, record sales. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at, at any given point, I think with uh, Thin Black Duke, we had uh, three videos for only one of which the director only showed, showed Chris Purdy, who we've used again, showed up to do face to face with us in it. I noted at a certain point that we got way more views than we've ever sold records, <laughs> right? I just, and I don't know that this necessarily generates sales, though I've got anecdotal, much more than anecdotal evidence that it does. But more importantly, you know, those numbers bared being paid attention to. I mean, people were on a larger scale being exposed to stuff we had done than ever we could have covered by playing live or, and, and then also paying attention to my kids. And it was rare for my kids to ever say, Hey dad, I, hey, I want you to listen to this song. <laughs> they would never say that. They would say, I want to show you this song. So I realized that, you know, this was maybe something that we should listen to. And besides which it was fun. Yeah. I, I always under, understood it as fun. And so out of the videos that we've done so far, I'm, I'm still, most greatly impressed with uh gunnel for the last song on it it's just i would like it even if it wasn't us in it, it um it just seems like a way it seems like a, a kind of shorthand so that you don't get lost and i think to a certain degree the attempt to do the thin black book the companion for thin black duke was an attempt to do the same thing like wading through misinterpretation and misunderstanding and maybe shop-worn cliches about how people want to talk about the band or review the band. Like, look, let's just, if they're not getting it, let's just, how about a boost? And video is a pretty, is a pretty perfect kind of genius type of boost to have. And they're, they're, uh, it's a different world, but I, I find it to be really satisfying. I'm really happy with what we've done so far. John Levy, uh, the thousand hours video was just, even though it was like two days or eight days after my surgery and I had to hobble this horrible <laughs> falling mountainside to get there. It just, it was really peak experience. It's really fun, really worthwhile. Yeah, really doing. Great. 
and, 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 and it dimensionally it spread it spreads in in the instance the person that, who was directing had heard the song and maybe read the lyrics um but it's really cool how their interpretations of what it is that we've done sort of meet and match exactly what our intent was in a lot of places so how much direction say, did you oh sorry nico um just quickly one of my favorite videos is a video one of them for that daft punk song get lucky if you remember one of the videos they did was a silhouette of the the two guys in daft punk uh the singer and the guitar player and there's 10 seconds in the middle of that where they the silhouettes actually dance and then it stops so there's almost nothing going on in the video and you just listen to the music uh, we may get to that level of abstraction uh but we haven't yet and we had tons of fun with the video go ahead tom yeah that's it that sounds a little bit andy kaufman like that famous uh performance yeah yeah, yeah. mighty yeah. mouse yes exactly um yeah, well, just a, a follow-on question about the videos. How much um, freedom have you given directors when it comes to creating the videos? Do you just say to them, I want you to interpret the music, or do you come to them with specific themes that you want to be involved? Basically, we've given them, basically we've given them 100% freedom. I mean, everything you see is essentially you know, thought up and generated by them. I mean, obviously, while we're making them, we have some input, but but it's really there. They're really, the videos are their pieces, you know? There was, there was one, one thing in making uh, Lovely Merc where they had uh, uh, an Olympic fencer on set. Um, I mean, he was a guy who was operating the drone, but he was also had been in the Olympics or was an Olympic alternate for fencing. And he was trying to uh, give us a brief kind of primer on how to fence. And, um, and, and one portion of it, um, I am knocked down, right? And the, the guy says, the guy standing next to the director, he goes, oh, so he takes, you know, the, the, the sword hits him and he, 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 he kind of falls down like this and it would be really funny. And I just had to stop and I was like, hey, 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 nothing about this lyric is fucking funny, okay? Nothing about this, be we're not doing Pratt Falls here, okay? I, I just started, like, whatever fucking, you know, thing, Les Claypool thing you're thinking right now, we need to not, I don't want to see that on video. I don't want, I want everybody to hear this clearly now. And they're like, okay, okay. So when it's a death scene, let's play it. It's no, it's not the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Let's play it straight. And they go, okay, okay. okay. And so... <laughs> And so when I took the fall, it, you know, it was like, now we went from doing <laughs> weekend at Bernie's to, it was like Serpico. Everybody was grim and serious. And that was <laughs> the tone and timbre, you know, I mean, a lot of times, you know, you get terrible, like I still can't, uh, Icy White and Crystalline, there was a cut in it. And if you remember the Bing Crosby Christmas special with the abominable snowman <laughs> and and we got the final cut of the video and I was not even going to look at it because I just assumed it was okay. I go, oh, wow, I like the video. I'll watch it again. And cut into the video was like a still of the abominable snowman from the Bing Crosby fucking video. I liked it. Did you? <laughs> I told Kieran, if you were here when I saw that, I would have punched you in the face. What are you, what are you fucking doing? It's not funny. What are you, how... <laughs> and he was like, oh, 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 oh. 
Okay. All right. All right. All right. Check it. Never mind. I just thought I'd inject a little levity. I got yeah. no. no. He took it out. Yeah. He took it out. Fuck. He took it out. Yeah. <laughs> I was mystified for days as to what that thought process was like. <laughs> <laughs> but you put Davy and Goliath in too, or in Gumby. Why not? I mean, all these fucking. Yeah. I, I, sorry. We could have saved some money if we just put all those things in and use those as our videos. <laughs> That's right. Gumby and Pokey. There you go. Davey. <laughs> Maybe you don't know that song. <laughs> That's right. Dave. Fuck that. <laughs> oh, I was an American uh, early 60s. Religious 50s. cartoon. Yeah. 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 Uh, anyway, we did have like odd inputs. Uh, Eugene talked about um, John Levy did a couple of videos. One of them is one that we have not aired yet, Million Dollar Weekend. And I had a small input to that by saying there's this place that I think would be good for the dark part of Million Dollar Weekend. The song, have the video have this section that is dark, which is the rock and roll part. And it's this outdoor amphitheater in San Francisco that had this, even in the middle of the day, for me, it has this really unsettling creepy feeling <laughs> strangely enough it's the jerry garcia amphitheater <laughs> in san francisco so he went there in the middle of the night and with yeah, some light enough. Yeah. yeah right and and filmed there and it, I, I thought it came out quite well but that that kind of feeling uh is important like uh all gone was the, the weird feeling in the basement here at my house just that song came out on piano because it's like this strange, creepy, unsettling feeling, uh, which has since dissipated, thank God. But um, but thinking about the input into that video for Million Dollar Weekend. Other than that, as Greg said, it, we just gave folks a, uh, just do what you feel. Do it. Make the video. What you yeah. feel, but tell us what you're going to do yeah, <laughs> that you're yeah. feeling before we yeah. do it so we can avoid misery. Yeah. So everybody I mean, kind of, yeah. Sometimes they, they would they shot ideas to us where we yeah. kind of shook our heads and went, "Man, we're not, we're not totally in love with that. What what else have you got? You know, yeah. but, but, um, but, but in the end, what you're seeing is their, you know, their vision mostly. Mm. Yeah. I, I bet you must've been asked this some way down the line, but what is actually the origin of being called Oxbow? And what was the process of going from being Oxbow to Oxbow? <laughs> uh, uh, you're talking about the separation between OX and BOW. Um, that was a, a Jim Blanchard who had done a lot of the artwork for, um, he did Fuckfest, he did um, uh, King of the Jews, he did uh, Let Me Be a Woman, the, the, the insert. Um, and, he, um, and he also pronounced the band's name in an interesting way him being originally from Oklahoma, I, I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but I like the fact, I like that discontinuity between how it was written initially, how he pronounced it, how we pronounced it, and how we chose to write it. Um, that gave me a good deal of pleasure. But the, the name in, in itself, is that what you're asking about specifically? Uh, um, I, I remember I, I had, uh, during a Whipping Boy tour, I had some really uh, intense dreams, you know, I, I would, I would maybe guess that it was if I was Shirley MacLaine, I would say I was seeing glimpses of, of, of the future. And in it, uh, I told Steve Ballinger about it at the time. I kept seeing a name emblazoned over everything. And I go, it was, it was Oxo, Oxo, like he's like, you know, like kisses and hugs, like you might leave and you could just repeat it forever. And 
And he's like, Oxo, that's like a bullion cube. And I go, ah, oh, yeah, that's this. It's not. That's not what I'm looking for here. Um, but then, then, yeah, yeah, no. I, but I, but so ox, ox bow, ox bow, like the implement for for a team of oxen. And and I got this whole like Knight of the Hunter thing where you know one ox is good and one ox is evil, and they're they are grappling. It's a duality. So it it matched up. It matched up really, really, really pretty perfectly, especially getting Nico's idea for Fuckfest was to to use this kind of palindrome thing, a mirror image. So um, in the end, you, you know, we were making a broad statement about, you know, <laughs> good and evil are really just maybe different manifestations of perspective. Right. So um, so that's where that's where the name came from it was funny at some point to hear somebody describe it and other bands like it they start calling it and it, i'm glad it never caught on they started calling it noun rock <laughs> you know like bands like cake it's cake you know or oxbow it's like i i go i thought it was pretty clear what it meant but you know apparently not so noun rock noun rock yeah i'm, I'm also glad that didn't catch on um yeah I don't want to keep you off for too much longer, but I just have a couple more questions. And Eugene, there's something that I'm really fascinated to find out from you. I can remember years ago uh, when I first got a, a physical copy of Serenade in Red on CD and I was listening to it and I was looking through the lyric sheet and I had this moment where I realized these are incredible poetic lyrics and you're not actually some of the time singing the words. It's mm. like you're you're emoting it so much and you've it seems like you've reached this stage where it's about the emotional representation of what you first came up with. And I just thought it was a kind of a fascinating um, thing because, you know, you can have death metal where you can't hear what they're singing and whatever, but when you've clearly put so much thought into the construction of the lyrics and then the way you express it doesn't necessarily have all of the words in it and you have to actually read it, I'm kind of curious how you've reflected on that as you've come up with lyrics and you've thought about the way that people are digesting them, you know, if they're hearing them or if they're reading it, what's the, how do you feel about that? Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I, I overrode on that record. Um, and, and then I had to decide, um, you know, I, <laughs> I, I overrode on that record and then giving the, the lyrics to the rest of the band, the, the music came together and, and and but I, I got no help. <laughs> that is like whatever. Fuck you. Figure it out. So what I had to do was to make decisions based on emotional truths about kind of what was sung, what was important to have articulated, what was not, what was less important to be articulated. And then of course I said, there's always the Rosetta Stone here piece, which is the actual lyric sheet, which you could uh, you could go hand it. And you know, live it's rare to do the the the, the same song twice the same way. It's 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 a for by for whatever reason you know that uh you know some i'm scared by a small child in the audience i forget a lyric it changes you know or somehow the emotional impact seems to come from doing something else instead of saying something else so i think that that, that but if you were to chart you would see that that was a peak of me overwriting uh, um and then we were in a studio in hildesheim and uh it's uh I, I picked up a book. I don't remember what we were doing there. Nico, I'm sure, would remember. I picked up a book, and it was a book of David Bowie's lyrics. And I was like, oh, I, you know, I'm a Bowie fan. I'm assuming I knew all these lyrics. And in odd moments in the studio, I'm reading these lyrics, 
and reading the lyrics separate from the music, I go, these lyrics are like something somebody would have written in junior high. I'm going to be king and you're going to be queen. What the fuck is this? But of course, on a parallel path, I heard the music in my head and I go, ah, he really, he really took a very simple lyric and, and made it just macroized it you know and i go so it's possible to take a simple a simple lyric and to into into elevate it into something magnificent well you don't have to overwrite right you don't have to you don't have to overdo it you can kind of pull back and i mean in in the end right the tetragrammaton the four letter word that represents the name of god was just one one word right so which was supposed to have given birth to all of creation so i started to write less and, and less and less and and then, of course, and I watched this recent documentary with Iggy Pop, and he says that he says that he got it from Soupy Sales, the comedian who I used to watch as a kid as well, who Soupy Sales said, send me send me some input on a postcard and don't make it more than 25 words. And he was like, how many 25 words? And he goes, you know, everything I need to say, I could probably say in 25 words, which has affected his lyric writing. So I was like, ah, yeah, a few words, a few words, I think, I think. Um, I mean, I've had long conversations with, you know, lovers that have not had a lot of talk, you know, there's been fewer well-placed words. Um, and then I've seen movies that have done that to great effect, where you're halfway into the movie and you realize the lead character has probably spoken about four sentences total, and it's really impactful. So, Like Drive? Yeah. Or <laughs> most, most recently, John Wick 4. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like halfway through John Wick 4. I go, oh, it must have been a bear for him to memorize all these lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, it's like about an hour of that, you know, and I'm like, fuck, this is actually genius, you know? Um, thinking about the the tour that's coming up for the, for the album, um, as someone that's seen Oxbow play a few times over the years, I don't know if this is a... A, a correct representation, but it seems to me that um, Eugene's days of taking clothes off uh, during Oxbow shows are kind of coming to an end. Is that uh, is that the case? Is this is this something that you would do, kind of intentionally or spontaneously, or um, you know, it seemed like that was more a part of Oxbow shows than it is these days. Is that in the past now? Well, I got hot. And, and we're on tour, so I don't have tons of different changes of clothing. So I wanted to keep my clothing from being um, disgusting and stinking and, and wet. Um, and also, I'm a vain man, and there's a whole fat Elvis factor. So <laughs> uh, the reality, though, is, I mean, you know, uh, we prepare for these uh, – all of us do different things to prepare for these tours physically. And I typically will start – doing road work like I'm you know like any other athlete about uh, my intent is to start July 5th to start actually hitting the track again uh, after the surgery um and what's funny about that if you really address it like that I don't sweat as much all right because it's not physically taxing <laughs> so it uh, functionally it's easier to keep the clothing on because I'm not leaving the stage drenched right um but that's also weird in a performative sense because um, 
in you know musical moments of of high dudgeon, right? That call for you know, something with a lot of emotional impact. If you look at me on stage and I'm breathing normally, I'm not I'm not heaving and I'm not sweating. <laughs> it looks too easy, <laughs> right? It really does look too easy. So this is stuff that that I've actually thought about. So while the fact that I'm really physically fit allows me to not sweat as much and to keep my clothes on, at the same time, it might seem like pericomo, like I'm casually kind of rip it, ripping stuff off. So there's a, there's a sweet spot that that I've sort of been ex experimenting with and finding, but in general, you know, I'm wanting to keep the clothes dry and as relatively as stink-free as I can. So it's not, it's not something to, I mean, I'm glad you put it in the area of, Performance, what happens live, and not it's non-musical in, in, in its in its essence, but um, but it's part of the visual presentation. But yeah, I don't. Uh, it's not something that's that's ever really planned. But yeah, but I hate pants on stage, and I'm not the only one. You know, I've never seen. It's rare for me to see Greg in pants. You know, he's a he's a shorts guy. So um, so I think that'll continue. But fully naked, I, I you know, there are places for that. <laughs> that and, don't and in, involve stages. And in terms of Eugene's point of the the sort of preparation and the build up for the tour, what's what's the process for the rest of you? And you know, thinking about the coming tour, we have a lot of work to do to figure out how to perform the new songs. And then an important part of that is, um, as I talked about earlier, we make a new set list every single night, minutes before we go on stage and try try to play it. And that adds some in, um, complexity, intensities. It's tension, a tension to nerves. You need yeah. to remember those songs. And sometimes when we make a set list, oh yeah, I can do that. And you get out in the moment and you go, oh fuck, I don't have the guitar tuned properly. And I don't remember that middle, that chord that comes right after, you know. So we have a lot of work to pr prepare the new songs. Uh, for me, yeah, there's there's some um, physical training, but also as a the musician, like as a guitar player, you're an athlete for sure from the wrist, from the maybe the elbow down, lots of things to do uh, to get my hands ready for that. Um, so yeah, we got a lot of work. And we haven't done a tour since 2018, and I think two shows since 2018, two performances. So it's it's a bit of a leap off of, of a cliff on this one, but it's going to be fun. <laughs> as far as I know, from what I've been able to observe, uh, Nico rides a bike, right? Is it? I remember that green bike you had. Yeah. Okay. Greg rides yeah. mountain, mountain mountain bikes. Yep. I have a Brompton now. Brompton. Yeah. And then, then somebody called me and said, hey, I think I just saw Dan rollerblading downtown. <laughs> <laughs> I was like... Yeah, that's probably Dan. Did he have his hot pants on? And he goes, yeah, yeah. He did. So, yeah. <laughs> that, that was a long time ago. But um, they were pretty handy for carrying on like a train or something. But um, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I've got a 16 mile, 16 mile bike ride in a couple couple days a week. So nice. I'm on my bike. Nice. Excellent. Yeah, I, try, I try to mountain bike at least three times a week, especially with tour coming up. But But there's also a mental sort of sort of mentally preparing yourself to do it um i don't know i don't know if i've ever been successful at that but i'm trying to prepare myself mentally to go on yeah. tour as well so you know if we and were practical if this was a, a guitar player magazine interview i would talk about 
I'm completely changing my amplifier and guitar effects setup. Yeah. Um, just leave it at that. But there's some serious technical things that are going on as well. Yeah, yeah. And it won't matter how much I we practice beforehand. My my hands will be completely bloody and fucked up by the third show. I'll have to live through that. But, you know, it's just the way it is. Well, that just always makes me think of um, uh, filthy Phil Taylor from Motorhead reportedly breaking his fingers, falling down the stairs, and then having them taped up and drumming from yeah. Motorhead, which I can't imagine is good for longevity, but uh, it puts things no. in perspective. No, I, I actually I actually have uh, crashed my bike a few years ago, and it injured my wrist, and I thought perhaps it was broken, and so I, I'd had it x-rayed, and the doctor came back and said, well... Uh, your wrist is fine. It's just a sprain. You, you'll get over it. But he said, "What? Um, what do you do?" And I, I, he said, "You have the you have the strange like the joints in your hands, and all, all your knuckles and your fingers are like fucked up. They're weird. They're like smashed." And <laughs> I'm like, "Well, I play the drums." And he sort of said, he looked off wistfully and sort of said, "Well, good luck with that." <laughs> you know, was, but you know so far they work so you know. left with a ringing note of endorsement well yeah gentlemen thank you so much it's been a pleasure and an honor and uh i know it's not particularly for me specifically but thank you for the new album as well it's it's gratefully received as i'm sure it will be by many other people and i hope that uh it gets the reception and you get the exposure that you deserve and uh have a great tour We'll see you in Berlin. Awesome. <laughs> Such a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Thanks. Appreciate Bye-bye. it. Thanks all very much. Yeah. Take care. This has been another episode of the Ghost Cult Magazine podcast. Check us out at ghostcultmag.com and follow our socials at Ghost Cult Mag. Until the next time, peace. <laughs>